kids who listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh yeah, life goes on, but the thrill of listening to Stick to Wrestling will never be gone. That was so bad. I want to thank my friend John Mellencamp for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast. Welcome to the final Stick to Wrestling of the Decade. My name is John McAdam and now I am going to bring in co-host Le Convivial, Sean Goodwin. Sean, what do you got for us? And while you're giving us the 60 minutes, you should pop over to the Facebook page where you can find out who Bob Backlund beat 40 years ago. All of John's daily results from around the world, uh, pictures, videos, announcing events, our YouTube clips that yes. you know Lou helps put together. All that's over at the webpage. So come on down and say hi. Yeah, and that's right. And I mentioned, I only mentioned that we're recording this a couple of weeks in advance because if anything ha- crazy happens in the wrestling world and we're not talking about it, that's why. But anyway, one other thing, uh, Sean Goodwin does not follow me on Twitter, so please make up for that by helping me on my march to a million followers. Our guest this week does wisely follow me on Twitter, and he's the perfect person for our subject matter this week. I want to bring in my good friend, Jeff Bowder. And Jeff, how you doing? First of all, I hated that John Cougar Mellencamp song choice. That song was so overplayed back in the day. I would have gone with something like maybe Ain't Even Done With The Night, you know, something along those lines. But other than that, it's a pleasure to be here. I don't know if it's a pleasure to follow you on Twitter. One thing I can tell anyone that's thinking about joining John on Twitter, he is never wrong. Okay, there I said it. <laughs> Just Stating the obvious once again, Jeff Bowdrin. Um, quick John Mellencamp story, and this is a true story. The video for Jack and Diane, that breakthrough hit that made him famous, he refused to cooperate. He did nothing for it. They just He's had a rebel. Still- yeah, <laughs> I love the guy's music, but I have heard that he's a bit of a jerk. But yeah, he did. He zero cooperation on the video that made him a star. Yeah. Uh, See the video anyway. that came out video that came out of him and Springsteen where Springsteen joined him on stage. No. Yeah, I posted that yesterday. It's pretty cool. I missed it. Now, yeah. I mean, two of my all time favorite performers. Yeah. So, uh, so the, the, the perfect subject matter that Jeff has joined us to discuss is. The 1989 Wrestling Observer Newsletter Year-End Awards for 1989 Wrestler of the Year. Uh, Number one by a really large margin was Ric Flair. Uh, Number two, Akira Maeda. Number three, Terry Funk. Number four, Genichiro Tenryu. And number five, Ricky Steamboat. Jeff, you got to share your thoughts on this with with our audience. Well, you know, I, I mean... It, it was arguably one of Flair's greatest years, so I really don't have any problem with him. You know, th- the other guys, Funk was essentially in for half a year. Steamboat was essentially in for half a year. Tenru was a huge deal when he turned on Saruta. Uh, Maeda was, geez, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think if he even wrestled three times during the year. I think it was right around three times. Yeah, but he was box office so explosive, and he had been such a— uh, Oh, my God, like a personality that just uh, developed uh, with his, you know, I don't know if that was when he was doing the UWF or rings or what. But uh, okay, yeah, but he was like a cultural phenomenon at that point. He was and they booked it like boxing in that, you know, they had, you know, two or three super shows a year and you train specifically for these matches. Like, you know, these guys weren't on the road every night because that wouldn't have been realistic. Yeah. And the, the I can tell you. It was not as popular outside of Tokyo, but within Tokyo, when the card and the lineup was released and went on sale, they usually sold out within 10 minutes. 
And, yeah. and I'm talking like 10, 12,000 seat buildings were sold out within two or three minutes. Yeah, it was absolutely crazy. It was something that is kind of, I don't know what's the word it, for it. It's like counterintuitive that you're going to pay to see guys pretend to really fight as opposed to what pro wrestling usually is. Like, why not just book a shoot or, or go to a shoot, which happened eventually, but still. Yeah, well, I, you know, they were still sort of trying to, uh, how, I mean, how can I put it like I don't know if they were saying it was a complete shoot, but they were saying it was definitely not what New Japan and All Japan were doing. It was something, you know, like uh, more than that. Yeah, and what All Japan and New Japan were doing were it was completely different and more serious, more realistic than anything in the in the United States, especially the WWF. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Sean, Wrestler of the Year 1989, please tell us what you think of the, first of all, the Observer balloting. Yeah, I like this list. I mean, this is Rick. This is Rick's. I would say this is he's always been great here, but this is his last like beginning to end. As Jeff was saying, that kind of Ric Flair year that just uh, above and beyond ridiculously great. This was yeah, this was a Ric Flair year. After that, I haven't seen enough Japan from 89 to comment. Um, And then Funkin' Steamboat. One thing I have to note is that you are going to see a very definite kind of anti WWF protest vote. Oh yeah. That you will, that you will see coming up, but Hogan shouldn't even be here. I mean, he was so played at this point. It it was painful. Well, he was, he, he was the top guy in the top company for most of the year. And I want to say this, it's the wrestling observer newsletter. We just had a series on the after magazines awards. Um, this is totally different. Dave takes work rate into consideration. He takes impact as a draw into consideration. I mean, it's not the only things. Obviously, oh, if you're a, oh. a just a big star, you get credit for that. In yeah, my, but these these crowds are starting to turn on him. And they're starting to go down. Yeah. 1989 was really a turning point for box office in the WWF. People started to realize that if something important was going to happen, it's going to happen on pay-per-view. Yeah, it was just for uh, just the whole. The, the, this was a really that they got very old and very stale very fast. Meaning the WWF, it was they, almost shocking speed. Yeah, it, it really they really pushed the cartoon element of you know WWF wrestling in '89. It was it was really just way different and worse than '88. Even um, when they brought in Zeus, the guy Randy Savage had as a partner who Hulk Hogan did a movie with. I mean, it was just over the top. In my opinion, Ric Flair, I mean, if you had to go through all the Observer Awards in the 80s, I think Ric Flair is number one, probably by the greatest margin, because he had amazing. He had an amazing feud with Terry Funk. He ended an amazing feud with, I like the Lex Luger feud. I'm not going to call it amazing. He, you know, he had the funk feud, he had the steamboat feud, and then he had the Muda feud. So, I mean, in ring, on the mic, he was fantastic. He was fantastic as a babyface. People forget how good Ric Flair was as a babyface. He had multiple five-star matches. I think that he just leads the way in 89. He had four, just a quick, he had four five-star matches easily, at least. Who else has done that? I can't think of anybody. Oh, uh, Okada, Okada did uh, that like in a month. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, he's the one who has seven-star matches. We exactly. actually had an episode about that. We had an entire episode about that. But um, 
I personally think that number two, at least in the United States, this may be a surprise. I'm not going to say Terry Funk. I'm not going to say Ricky Steamboat, even though I thought they had great years. But like Jeff pointed out, they both had like about six months in the ring. Randy Savage was outstanding in 1989. He completed the turn against Hulk Hogan. He did some of the best heel interviews out there. And we're talking about, you know, a guy in the WWF gets to do great interviews. He had great matches. He was a top star, the, the top heel the entire year. I actually would go, the Observer readership had him at number six. I'm, I'm saying Randy Savage at number two. You can make a case for Savage. The problem is that the, there's such an anti-WWF bias here. It, it, they're, 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 like, the anger is palpable that even if it's like being Quinn Buckner. You remember when he was always the best player on the worst team? Yes. It's pretty much similar to that. Randy had a great year on the Titanic. Indiana's own Quinn Buckner gets a mention on Stick to Wrestling. Um, you know, here's the thing, and what you're saying is correct. I mean, if you if you were a WWF fan who just enjoyed his wrestling, you were not reading The Observer. And if you were reading The Observer as, I want to say, in that cult, but you're influenced by the the opinion shared in the Wrestling Observer. It was just a, I don't know what to call it, uh, just you know a, a bunch of people who had a similar opinion that, hey, we like old-style Mid-South wrestling. We like what the NWA is doing. We're old-school fans. We don't like the people you know, that were reading the Observer had been brought up on or had you know become fans watching. Uh, well, I'll throw something that John will be very easily understand. It's kind of like the difference between being a fan of like a, a new wave or a punk group and then having the the other guy that's the top 40 fan. Yes. You know, the, the easily accessible music as opposed to the stuff where you have to go to the, the club in the crappy part of town uh, down in the basement to, to hear them. And, you know, that's what the Observer readers were. They were the people going to see the, you know, the, the clubs, you know, in the crappy neighborhood to see the uh, the new up and coming band. That, that's, is, that is an outstanding analogy. I try. <laughs> but yeah, it's really true. The WWF was, you know, top 40 pop. It's all easy to digest. And yeah, the NWA and maybe some of the Japanese promotions or even world class at this point, which wasn't even world class anymore. Uh, you know, they were, if you're the wrestling connoisseur, as it were, this is what you, this is what you seek out. Yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, most outstanding wrestler. This is strictly for in-ring talent. I'll give you the Observer's top five. Number one, Ric Flair. Number two, Jushin Liger, who they're still calling Jushin Riger. Number three, Ricky Steamboat. Number four, Terry Funk. Number five, Genichiro Tenru. Uh, Jeff, what do you think about this list? Uh, I think it's it's pretty awkward that in, in hindsight, because I remember uh, in my uh, my book, uh, they call me Booker. I also referred to him as Jushin Riger because we hadn't got the translation yet that it was Liger. Um, you know what I think is interesting? I, you know, I got absolutely no problem uh, with this because because Liger was really starting to come into his own as perhaps the greatest junior heavyweight of all time. And, you know, uh, what I noticed is is the guys in the honorable mention category. Muda had a great year. Uh, Takata was part of, you know, Maeda's group, uh, and was thought of as the guy that was the, the, the greatest uh, of the workers in that group. Uh, but I like the fact that laying there at number eight is a guy that time has forgotten, John, yes. Naoki Sano. And I just happened to 
pick up uh, something the other day, and I read that uh, on Jushin Lug, Liger's farewell match, which by the time this comes out should be a couple days away, he will be teaming with his old rival, Naoki Sano, and that's pretty cool. That is really cool. I have to make three really quick points here. Number one, I am in the middle of reading your book, They Call Me Booker. Uh, I got it like back in June or July, and I just hadn't gotten around to it, but I'm literally in the middle of it. It's a lot of fun. It's Jeff booking uh, the booking WCW in 1990, and there he had a lot of really, really good ideas as opposed to the really, really bad ideas that WCW rolled out. So I am right at Starcade, which puts me December 90, and the book goes through 1991. So I recommend goes through the uh, the bash of 1991. Actually. Oh, okay, yeah. all right. I remember Dave like. Yeah, you, still like got he, another, you still got another seven months to go there, McAdam. <laughs> okay. I remember Dave just like kind of dropping it because of it had something to do with the Hogan angle. And he just, you know, we've got a golf well, actually, going what on. It, what it, had and it was kind of really. Nah, so, all right. Yeah. In the UWF, I would become a superstar. I did the, the UWF stuff, which was so different. Pro wrestling moves. And, you know, that got into uh, Takata's mindset. And, you know, that's. That's one of the reasons why I think he left New Japan. And, you know, and you got to understand there was so even more than than a lot of promotions in the United States. There was so much politics going on in New Japan wrestling and talk about a glass ceiling. Yeah. You know. That he is wasn't totally even at the true. glass ceiling ceiling for the first floor. You know, there was <laughs> there was two other three other floors that he still had to go through. But he was definitely a guy that. You know, yeah, if history had been different, I could have definitely seen him as, uh, you know, like with uh, with Muda and with, um, oh, God, I'm going to draw a complete blank on him now, Hashimoto. And um, who's the other guy that did the Yakuza gimmick? The three the three musketeers that were the guys in New Japan in the early 90s. Takata, yeah. definitely. Chono. Yeah. Chono I'm sorry. Uh, he definitely could have been one of the guys you know made it a foursome because he was so talented. He was really talented. He really was. I'm, I mean, Jushin Rai, the, the announcer says, Jushin Hiraiger! And we, we, uh, a, uh, the thing comes across the screen, and it's in Japanese. We can't read it, so what are we going to do? Sean, yeah. what do you think, most outstanding wrestler, 89? Yeah, I like this list, too. It's, I mean, the one guy I would have pushed for was Muda, who really seemed to come into his own. It was almost like the booking was working against him a little bit. Uh, it, they were, it seemed like at points they were kind of a, they wanted to only push him, but to a certain extent. Uh, but I came up on the scene. I thought they could have done more with them. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> I, I've addressed that issue on many podcasts. Uh, they right. completely dropped the ball on that guy. As great as Jushin Liger was in 89 and were, I mean, you know, if you didn't have the man made sure you got it. Just for 89 alone, I would have gone Steamboat. I would have gone Flair number one by a pretty big margin. Even though he only wrestled half the year, Ricky Steamboat was so damn good. I would have gone him number two. Terry Funk, number three, because he had night after night, he had great matches against Ric Flair. I went to a show in Worcester, Mass. in September 89. Yeah, it was, it was either September or, or October. And the whole show stunk except for Flair versus Funk, which was like four. No question. It was a great feud. And, right. uh, you know, the guy night. They did, and Flair, I mean, Funk, we talked about this on this podcast, I mean, he kept working through uh, some kind of an infection in his arm, and he almost lost the arm, but he just, you know, didn't want to stop. Anyway, best babyface, 1989, the Observer, 
gives it to Hulk Hogan by a really big margin. Uh, number one. Number two is The Ultimate Warrior. Number three is Akira Maeda. Number four is Ric Flair. And number five is Sting. Uh, Jeff, what do you think? Well, I think, like you said, uh, you know, Hogan, he wasn't as big as he was in 84 and 85. Oh, he was past his peak. Yeah. I, I think, honestly, I understand that people don't take into account a lot of times, that, you know, the fans that vote that aren't fans of Japanese wrestling. I agree with that. My only, my own, the only negative I would say about my, it's not even a negative. I'll just throw it in this comment. Was he really a baby face? I mean, because they presented that. As yeah, much- he was kind of, he was almost doing, uh, this is not an, a completely 100% accurate uh, assessment. It was almost like S- Steve Austin, you know, he was sort of like a bad boy baby face, you know, he was not, he was certainly not the all American, you know, obviously he's Japanese, but I mean, like, he's not the nationalistic, uh, uh, hero, like, like say Anoki was okay. He sort of did it with, you know, he had this edge to him. Uh, he, he like was like, uh, so, sort of in a way, I guess a good comparison would be the way that Naito was, uh, you know, like the, within the last couple of years, you know, the guy that sort of disrespected authority, a little bit of edge to him. And, you know, that's, uh, that's what Maeda was doing in 89. And it's something that, quite frankly, Choshu was the first one that started that in like eh, around 82 and 83, the, the uh, anti-authority you know, figure. And that's, you know, even though it was like he was the face of the company, he was the face of the company that kind of had a middle finger out at New Japan. That is true. I mean, that's like, but to me, Maeda as a baby face, it's like saying uh, Muhammad Ali is a baby face or uh, Manny Pacquiao is a baby face because it's it's presented as a legitimate contest. Yeah. Or Conor McGregor. There you, there you go. Yeah. You know, Sean, you've been we've been quiet too long. You got to tell us. What you're <laughs> uh, there are a few votes here where I look at it and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, is this sarcastic? Uh, the whole, the way they treat the reason I say this is the way they treat the WWF in every other vote, and then all of a sudden Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior are overwhelming the top two, you know, uh, baby faces. So I, it almost feels like there's like a sense of sarcasm to it. <laughs> um, uh, I I I I thought Rick probably was the best. It really wasn't a great baby face year. Uh, it, maybe that's why they, maybe that's you, why they were one and two because yeah, WCW just, did not do as good a job of promoting their baby faces. I mean, let's give Vince credit. He yeah. he did a great job of, of putting the warrior and Hogan over his baby faces. I think it's well, kind of funny that Rick Steiner is on this list at number six. You didn't you mention him. You beat me to that. Yeah. And, yeah. I would say in 1988, uh, I think he would have been a really good candidate when they first, you know, made him into the dog face gremlin. That was a great gimmick and everybody loved the guy. I think by 89, that gimmick had kind of played itself out though, hadn't it? I totally agree. I think Rick Steiner, even though he got, I mean, less than, geez, about 5% of the votes that Hulk Hogan got, I just, he stands out as what is he doing on this list? But does the one thing about this list, does this tell you, the thing that jumps out at me is who's not here? Rick Steiner got votes over Ricky Steamboat, WA champion during the year. How how much that whole bit with his wife and the kid was killing him as far uh, as the baby face. Yes, it does. Because Ricky steamboat, I mean, if you're getting booed out of the building, you're not doing a really good job being a baby face. I words, mean, the- words cannot express how bad the idea was to make the wife and the kid 
part of the act, which, by the way, from everything I've been told, was completely the wife's idea. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the, not a good idea on uh, on their part. And in hindsight, it was actually kind of a disaster. And, you know, the business was changing. You know, uh, the the whole mild manner, almost like Bob Backlund babyface that Ricky Steamboat presented himself as just wasn't flying with wrestling fans anymore. No, I've said this on this podcast before. It was like these guys totally – were just i mean it's not that they didn't understand their audience it's almost like they they didn't know who their audience was it was like you know it, like your audience was from mars or something like that you know if you went to an, an nwa show in 88 or 89 if you spent a half an hour in that building you you should have known that gimmick wasn't going to work and the worst part is that he evolved into this it wasn't that ricky was always like this Back in the late 70s, he I mean, I, I don't want to say he was a bad, bad boy or anything like that, but I mean, he wasn't, you know, even up to like 83, he was, you know, it, it wasn't like this. No. This happened later on. So basically, for some reason, they thought this was going to work with the audience. It wasn't like he got stuck in it like Backlund, who just was the same guy and never evolved. He evolved into this kind of character that was never going to work. No, and, Ren, you know, the thing is, the Ricky Steamboat that was the super over baby face in uh, Mid-Atlantic in like the 70s and into the early part of the 80s, he was a guy that was like, uh, he was an attraction, sort of like Magnum TA was in the middle part of the decade, that that was the... uh, that was the one that put the girls in the seats, you know, Ricky Steamboat. And suddenly, when now you're presenting this guy as a married man, you know, although the girls are, you know, maybe sitting there thinking, oh, he's really good looking, you know, his wife's hanging around him too, you know. Yeah, so, so he's unavailable. Yeah, that 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 part of the appeal that, you know, guys like, you know, Ricky Morton had and, and that Ricky Steamboat had in the 70s and 80s was gone now. And so I think that, that played a part in making him, you know, not quite as uh, appealing. No, totally. I, I am in 100% agreement with you. It was almost like they it wasn't like they wanted to put out this wholesome character, Ricky Steamboat, uh, devoted to his family against Ric Flair, this guy who's got a different girl every night. I mean, you might as well have, have produced that storyline in front of a bunch of guys at a strip club. They're they're going to you know whose side they're going to be on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Has Rick ever mentioned once in all the promos he's ever done that he's married? That he was married at any given time? Before Starcade 83 and before Starcade 93, it was ad- acknowledged that he was married. Yeah. yeah. I can remember. I remember they did the interview with John. I don't know if you remember this one where they did the interview. It might have been before 83 where he did the interview with his kids. Uh, uh, it was uh, David and uh, as he called her, Megan. I, I always remembered that. Uh, but he said, you know, he made a comment like uh, their mother and I are no, no longer together or something along that. But I mean, like was acknowledged that he had been married and he had kids and things like that. Yeah. That, you know, he was outside of wrestling. He was this regular guy, you know, who lived in the house and had kids, etc. I don't know if Ric Flair could ever be described as a regular guy. <laughs> no. <laughs> To say the least, no. (laughs) All right. Best heel. The Wrestling Observer voted Terry Funk number one with a pretty decent margin over number two, Randy Savage. Lex Luger was number three. Rick Rude was number four. And Ted DiBiase was number five. Jeff, discuss, please. I can't even believe that Zeus got 91 votes in in sixth place. That's just uh, no problem with with Funk getting the award. He really deserved it. His work that year was stellar. Uh, Savage, you mentioned, was really great. Uh, 
I'll get to Luger in a second. Uh, Rick Rude was unbelievable. Uh, you know, I remember he worked a program with the Ultimate Warrior, and I thought he might have got the best matches out of the Ultimate Warrior in his career. Uh, I think DiBiase's, you know, the Million Dollar Man thing had kind of started to play itself out a little bit by this point. Uh, but getting back to Lex Luger, I have stated many times before, uh, I, w- I was never a huge Lex Luger guy, okay? But 1989 was the year of Lex Luger's life. He was unbelievable. Uh, you know, it, it certainly helped that he was uh, in programs with Luger or with uh, with Steamboat and with Flair, uh, you know. But uh, I think he also did stuff with Pillman. Uh, but he was tremendous that year. And he was tremendous into early 1990 and then uh, kind of started going uh, downhill. But he, uh, giving him credit where it's due, he was tremendous as a heel this year. He definitely was. It was like they found he found his place. He found his stride. He found the correct role for himself as a just an unbelievable, snotty, condescending heel. And, you know, then something happened and they panicked and they turned him back around again. But I agree. I mean, this was his Brady Anderson year. Sean Goodwin, your thoughts. Everything Jeff said about Luger. I don't like him anywhere else, but this year he was great. And I, I don't remember him being great. I only know this from the shows we've done about 89. And I'm going back and like, wow, he really was good. But as, as a heel, it was a good fit for him. Uh, he absolutely belongs here. Uh, it was, yeah, this was, this was his, this was his like Manny Fernandez, 1980, 79, His, his, like, his yeah. year started at Starcade 88. Uh, even though they did that stupid uh, blood finish uh, in Baltimore, as I recall, the match was really good. Uh, his matches in '89 were really good. Again, like John said, playing that arrogant, almost like a uh, uh, college jock, you know, like uh, smug heel, was really good. And it went all the way through up until Wrestle War '90, uh, which I think was like in February of '90. And then after that, it kind of started hitting the skids. But uh, no, you know, like you said, give him credit. Uh, where was it? He had, he had good matches with a lot of different people. And, so, and Stan Hansen too. He had good matches with. Yeah. That was in yep. 90. Oh, it was. Okay. I'm sorry. That's I, just remember, right. I, I remember, I remember Hansen uh, spitting all over him. That was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, Luger, like from, from the beginning of his, his career, which was 85, he looked like a guy who had potential like in 85, 86. I mean, he was green as grass, but he had that look and he had he he had charisma and 87 88 i was kind of like okay i see this coming along this project is he's getting better he's getting there and in in 89 he got there and then he just started to regress trivia time for you john and sean and the audience do you remember what his original name was oh yes i do um it was l u g a r right well you're close Nope, you're wrong, Lou. Lou chiming in with Larry Luger. It's not. It's not Larry Luger. His original name when he appeared, the Luger. Uh, on the Luger. That was what they called him. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was Larry Luger too. Like Lou. No, Mitch. that's what Lex said. Yeah, but but the first time I remember seeing him on a CWF broadcast, he came out to an interview segment with uh, with Percy Pringle and with Rick Rude, and they you know showed the picture. You know, he appeared on screen, and the uh, title was the Luger. <laughs> I actually remember that. I'm glad I got that last was, uh, second. Yeah, that, his name was NRA endorsed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The uh, one, the one change I would make is I would. Uh, Jeff was right about DBI, um, uh, and Funk was obviously. I didn't interrupt you there. No. With Muda was much like Steamboat was the babyface that was getting cheered. Muda was getting booed, but he also had a substantial part of the audience that was cheering him. 
Oh, so, yeah. you know, Funk didn't have anybody cheering him. Everybody was booing Funk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. That, those two are definitely the top two. The Zeus vote is another one of those things I was saying about the sarcastic vote, uh, where you see a couple of these things are just weird. The Zeus one, uh, 91 votes for him is the one, you know, one of the uh, things I noticed. All right. I, I agree with the top three. Terry Funk, Randy Savage, Lex Luger, in that order. My number four would have been Jerry Lawler. Lawler turned heel in 89, and he was a great heel again. I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know if that I was following Memphis in 89, so I'll have to take your word for it. He's a great <laughs> heel, though. There's no question about it. I mean, he, he was a great babyface and a great heel. There's not a lot of guys that can pull them both off. You know, there's an old saying that the better a heel you are, the better the baby face you are. Either you have it or you don't. And in, there are many cases where that's just not true. That's true. You're right. Well, anyway, feud of the year. And this was a tough one for me, at least. Number one was Ric Flair versus Terry Funk with a total of 1,930 points. Second place, Ric Flair versus Rick Steamboat with a total of 1,921 points. So talk about neck and neck. Saruta and Tenru was number three. Number four was Jushin Liger against Naoki Sano. Number five was Hulk Hogan against Randy Savage. Jeff, what what do you think about this ballot? Well... I think that uh, I don't know that Flair and Steamboat ever really got over as like some sort of blood feud. You know, it it was aesthetically it was absolutely great. I mean, their Mm -hmm. matches were just like poetry. But, you know, Flair and Funk really gave off the vibe that they hated one another. And that's what you want to see. It's almost like uh, you were having a a feud between. uh, uh, Let me see. I don't know if this is like Funk and Briscoe. Flair and Steamboat was like Funk and Briscoe. And, you know, the. uh, uh. the flair and funk was more of a just a like a down and dirty kind of uh, you know old school feud like you know where they were, you know I, Jesus he put the bag over his head at Halloween Havoc you know yeah. I mean uh, he wasn't doing that to Steamboat he may he may have talked <laughs> trash to him but he wasn't putting the bag over his head or or you know they weren't doing anything that bad and it wasn't uh, you know the I quit and stuff like that but uh, so yeah I uh, I would probably give it in flair and funk too you know it's interesting Saruta and Tenru being the third choice. Uh, which interesting about this is because and this is part of the whole booking strategy in all Japan. I don't know, and John helped me out with this. I don't know that they faced each other maybe more than two or three times that year, because that was Baba's booking style. He he made you wait for that big match, and then it almost always paid off. But uh, you know that's that was part of their you know Flair and Funk and Flair and Steve. But we're going like you said in you know Worcester, Mass. I mean you know I mean come on. No offense to the good folks of Worcester, Mass, but you know you really go to Worcester, Mass and think to yourself I'm going to see a world title change or is it going to be like in one of the big buildings on a pay per view? And you know much like that, you know you see a sword and tin route. You know it's going to be you know in Tokyo, probably a Budokan Hall. It's going to be twelve thousand people there. The match is going to be stiffer than hell, and it's going to be a great, awesome match. It's going to go over thirty minutes, and you know. That's why they only book it a couple times. And that's one thing that, you know, that New Japan does now, not to n- totally get away from the point here, but, you know, the fact that Okada doesn't defend the mat or the title every single night, that's, that's I think, is really intelligent booking, you know, because when Flair, you know, and, and those guys did that and they would go to the smaller towns and have the quote-unquote title on the line, I think it really watered the title down a little bit. 
I can see that the other side of the coin and granted the world has changed so much. Like we, we know everything Okada is doing today. We didn't really have as much information anywhere near as much information 30 years ago. Um, and someone made a good point. I, I heard this back in the eighties. Um, the guy was talking about Hulk Hogan coming to Des Moines, I want to say, or Peoria. So I think it was Peoria. And he said, you know, this is why Peoria loves pro wrestling, because Hulk Hogan comes to Peoria. Jose Canseco's not coming to Peoria. Vanna White's not coming to Peoria. I think that was part of, in general, like the draw of wrestling. Like you would have Andre the Giant, North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Yeah, but the difference and the point I was trying to make is, you know, what what they could have done and what Baba did at the time with with Jumbo and with Tenru was that he would have him facing off, but it'd be like in a tag match or a six man match. So, like to use your example, if Hulk Hogan would come to Des Moines, Iowa, okay, you put him in a six man tag or something like that. You you know, the person in Des Moines, Iowa, is like, holy crap, Hulk Hogan's here. But, you know, you go back, and this is in the Wayback Machine, but one of the things that Luthez used to always say is that he didn't want to defend the title in those smaller towns. Team so, you know, towns. You, you That's know, what he called them. Yeah. But, I mean, like, or what you could do is you could have Ric Flair face Terry Funk, make it a non-title match, okay? Or have somebody face Hulk Hogan in Des Moines, Iowa, and Hulk Hogan's there, and he comes out, and, boy, real American pops, and everyone jumps up in the air. It's just not for the title. I just think it devalues the title when, when you do that. Whether it's Hogan, Flair, or Jumbo, or whoever. I mean, maybe. And another point, too, is in Japan, it was way different. Like, they covered wrestling in the newspaper. The sports section was uh, baseball, pro wrestling, and something else. I forget what. Baseball magazine, Shah. Yeah, thank you. That's what it's called, yeah. And... That was it that, you know, and they didn't cover wrestling in the newspapers out here, aside from something the size of a postage stamp, giving you the results of, you know, Madison Square Garden or Boston Garden. Yeah. And, you know, uh, they also include, uh, as I previously mentioned, the Liger-Sano feud, which uh, for any of you out there, and, and Sean, I don't know if you've seen any of this stuff. But uh, if you have uh, the New Japan World, I encourage you to go and seek out, or I, I don't know if they have anything on Daily Motion or YouTube, but uh, if you can find the Liger versus Sano matches, holy cow, they were off the charts. They really were. I recommend them. Sean, uh, your your opinion on Feud of the Year, 1989? Flair and Funk is a feud. Flair and Steamboat's a rivalry. Um, it's, uh, it, there was never, and in, even the way Steamboat and Flair was presented, it was presented very St. Louis style, very kind of promoting the, the rankings, the, the win, the losses, the, the title defenses. It was, you know, a, Flair and Funk was a blood feud. Uh, and that's of course the influence of Terry Funk into the situation and his own kind of mania, but it's so it, just by the title, it's got to be Flair Funk and by a good amount. Uh, there was no one even close. I'd actually have, you know what? I, I hate the whole product, but Savage was so good. I'd have Hogan Savage higher. Um, uh, but uh, but I don't see yeah, how Flair and Steamboat de- never, I agree with Jeff. It wasn't a feud. It was never presented as a feud. I like the way I like the way you phrased that. It was a uh, rivalry versus feud. So to put it in a context that John will understand, uh, Flair and Steamboat was Notre Dame USC. Uh, Flair and Funk was Notre Dame, Michigan. So Notre John, Dame, Miami. Um, uh, now because they don't really face Miami anymore, they face Michigan all the time. Oh, uh, in, so, in the eighties. Let's go with okay, that. Okay, that's that's a good example. But so, give me your Tennessee uh, comparison there. 
Who's who's your rival and who's your blood feud if you're Tennessee? You see, Tennessee's difficult because we have three blood feuds. We have Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. Those are all blood feuds. I would say rivalry, maybe Kentucky, but t- Tennessee's like weird like that. Yeah. So, but no, I, you know, Sean makes a good point. One's a rivalry, one's a feud. Absolutely valid point. I mean, I personally thought it was Flair versus Funk for the same reason you guys are saying. Um, It it really felt like these two guys were out to kill each other. Uh, And Funk's interviews were way better than Ricky Steamboat's. I'm sorry. Uh, Funk just came in and brought, like, new life, new blood into that promotion at the very top of the card right from the start against Sting and then against Flair. So I actually think it's Flair versus Funk by a mile. I agree with you, Jeff, that, or both of you, that Flair versus Steamboat, I mean, the matches were just so incredible that you have to rank it just on those. Japan, like you guys said, I felt like Japan was always more of a rivalry than a feud for most of their feuds. Um, I'm into the, you know, the more American style of two guys who, you know, just have this hate gradually building up and you want, they want to hurt each other like in a steel cage match. So I would go with Hogan versus Savage as number three. Uh, I mean, Randy Savage totally carried that feud with his work, with his interviews. Yes. Hulk Hogan is Hulk Hogan and you need that Rocky Balboa type in the middle, but he was a great you know, he turned on Hogan because he was just a, a bitter guy. I, I love the whole thing. And uh, we haven't mentioned it yet, but I think the one that came in at number six, you can segue right into your, your next topic. Uh, yes, the number six is the Brain Brusters versus the Rockers and Tag Team of the Year. Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty finished number one. Listen to this with 1,310 total points. Number two, Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson, who were in the WWF most of the year. They let they both left with like six or seven weeks left. One thousand three hundred and eight points. That is beyond razor thin. Um, Fuyuki and Kawada at number number three, and they're pretty close. Uh, one thousand one hundred and thirty one thousand one hundred thirty seven points. The Steiners are number four, and Crawford and Furnace are number five. Uh, Eat now, Eaton and Lane number six. I will totally go off on this when it's my turn to speak. But Sean, give us your thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a miracle they got two hundred ninety votes. Talk about for them getting the Muda treatment. And, um, and by the bookers over 1989 so th- they got no help i'm i'm gonna go blanchard anderson just because i'm a blanchard anderson team that style i find more entertaining uh one one thing to note i the the vote was very close but uh, there were much uh there were about uh, another 30 first place votes for michaels and Janetti. So it seemed like the the option was for them to get the number one spot. Uh, I don't know. It's it's, it's more of a stylistic thing for me. It was a great year for both teams, and they both had a a good rivalry. One uh, question for Jeff, because it's something I don't know. Uh, Speaking of uh, Crawford and Furnace, what about the uh, Footloose team? Uh, Fuyuki and Kawada, they were tremendous. Uh, Would uh, would you include them on the rivalry team? Didn't they have a good feud that year? Uh, You know, the— the only reason that I wouldn't, you know, I mean, I guess you could say this about Michaels and Janetti and Blanchard and Anderson, you know, 
And none of those four teams were like placed in a position where they were on the top of the card. I mean, you know, the Footloose were essentially a middle of the card team. They were a great team. And, you know, the stuff they did with Crawford and Furnace was really good, uh, you know, but I don't know that they were ever, you know, put in a position where they carried the card, uh, you know, so. You know, at least with Midnight, when Midnight was winning, they they had worked the tops of, of some of the cards, you know, and they were so impactful to the promotion. I am talking back, you know, like uh, 85, 86, 87, around there. So I don't, I don't know if you could give it to the Footloose, even though in the ring they were unbelievable. Uh, I, I mean, I have no problem with with the Rockers or, or the Brain Busters, you know, being one, two here. Uh, the team that, that I, I should mention uh, that you said was for Rick and Scott Steiner were really good that year. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Because it's before Scott got completely gassed out of his mind and decided he wanted to be Road Warrior Hawk and was still working his ass off. And uh, he was, you know, they had about a two or three year run where they were really, really good. No, they they definitely did. And Jeff, you remember the match. Um, oh, man, it was against two of the uh, Japanese wrestlers at that. Uh, it was in it, Chattanooga, right? Uh, I think it was. It, was it? To, it was the show after Tokyo Starcade. Okay. Because I know there was a, I think it was the match I'm thinking it was 91, and I think it was a clash of champions. I thought it was Chattanooga, maybe it was somewhere else. Um, and if uh, the one I'm thinking of, it was uh, Tatsumi Fujinami and Izuka, uh, the guy who just retired, who at the time was like a real young boy. And they, is this what you're talking about? When they completely annihilated the young boy? Yeah. Yeah, they just totally bullied this guy around, stiffed the shit out of him for no reason. Yeah, they they certainly didn't do that to to Fujinami. (laughs) (laughs) No. That would not have gone over well. (laughs) Uh, So, so, Sean, what would your pick for Tag Team of the Year 89 have been under the Observer Rules? Blanchard Anderson. I'm I'm usually going to pick that. I just again, and I know it's it's a stylistic thing. I just like the way they kind of worked a match as opposed to the more high-flying uh, Michaels and Jenny, but who also had a great year. And they were clearly the preference to win it. So, um, and yeah, I'll let you go off on Eaton Lane, but they no one did them any favors this year either. I mean, they were their usual great self when they were in the ring, but I mean, they just got hosed all year long. Yeah, I mean, all year long is right. I mean, you think of where they were coming out of 1988, especially if- According to the Observer, like this, this voting goes from December 1st, uh, December 1st, 88 through December 1st, 89. And if you saw where the Midnights were December 1st, 88 versus where they are now, I mean, it, it just bring a tear to your eye, man. They just had such a horrible year, yet they were so they were still so great in the ring. Uh, by that time, it was time to turn them babyface by the time they turned. And it was almost, I mean, to this day, it almost feels like the promotion went out of their way to devalue the Midnight Express. Jim Cornette thinks they did it. He's probably right because they wanted to lower their contract. It's almost like uh, we can't justify paying you what we promised we would. So we're going to move you further down the card to prove that point. It was crazy. Road Warriors at number seven surprises me a little bit. I'm guessing by this point in 89, they were really starting to get stale. Uh, They were never great in the ring, but they were the Road Warriors. I ultimately would have gone Blanchard and Anderson just ahead of Michaels and Gennetti. Uh, Footloose was really was great as well. Um, Yeah, that would have been my vote. Blanchard and Anderson, number one. But yeah, it's like I said, this is, you know, the the ruination of the Midnight Express, which, of course, would continue throughout 1990. Most well, improved. when you say it was the promotion before, I'm sorry, I don't mean rep. When you no, say it was the promotion, it was Jim Hurd. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's exactly. Jim Hurd decided he was going to screw the Midnight Express, and you're right. He was going to lower their salary and devalue them, and, you know. So all the bad things you hear about Jim Hurd, at least uh, professionally speaking, were true. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, that that just makes no sense. I mean, you know, to take something that was that hot and, you know, just to put it on ice, it was crazy. Most improved, Lex Luger, by a really good margin, finishes number one. Scott Steiner, number two. Rick Rude, number three. Uh, Naoki Sano, number four. And Dan Crawford, number five. Uh, Jeff, what do you think of this ballot? Well, I said that, you know, when I talked about Luger before, that he deserved it, you know, for uh, what he did this year. Uh, you know, good point on the Steiner and Rude, too, because Rude was really good before. He just kind of took it to the next level this wasn't a case of, you know, I remember famously in the after magazines, I think the awards for 86, uh, they gave the most improved to Terry Gordy, the guy that had been wrestling for you know like nine years. So uh, so Scott Steiner uh, at this point, having not really been wrestling that long, I think that's a that's a good choice. Uh, Rude also. Naoki Sano uh, might have been more of a guy that just had never been pushed by the promotion. Uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly how long he had been working. He was, of course, tremendous, but it might have been a case of more, you know, instead of most improved, uh, you know, most uh, most uh, guy that just got a push. Yes. Know, New Japan. Yeah. No, it, it's really impressive because I think I'm pretty sure Scott Steiner started in 87 and, you know, two and a half years in the 80s wrestling business is nothing. And he was OK. I remember him in Memphis in 88 and then they brought him into WCW in 89 and he got really got better from the beginning of the year through the end of the year. In the mm-hmm. ring. When he and Scott would come out to welcome to the jungle, <laughs> I can't even describe the the incredible pop that they would get as a tag team. They would, and by you know at this point we're talking. You know, this issue came out uh, the very beginning of 1990. I mean, I was looking at uh, at Scott Steiner as the possible face of the company, like ahead of Sting, ahead of Lex Luger. That that's no, everybody thought he was the next there. Jack Briscoe for God's sakes. You know? Yeah, you know, yeah, in a 90s version of Jack Briscoe, a guy with the amateur background. He's a really good worker. He's enough of a tough guy for the men to like him. He was a good-looking enough guy for the girls to like him, and it just never came together for him. Yeah. So, Sean, your thoughts on Most Improved 1989? Yeah, I mean, this seems like a completely fair list. Uh, I, I don't know if this was the year that Crawford and Furnace – made the leap but i mean you know it's just for their work in japan is usually especially this year this was a good year for them so i don't know if that's like a like a as jeff was saying with uh uh, saino with just uh this is the first time he got pushed you know or something like that um so but these are good performers rude had a great year steiner had a great year and uh as we've all said this was luca's best year uh, as far as perform, not necessarily the greatest push, but this just in you know week in week out good performances from him. So yeah, this uh, this this seems like a fair list. I haven't seen a Sano match probably in twenty years. I need to I need to re up on that because I did at this point. I was watching a lot of Japanese wrestling, and I kind of faded out of that in the 90s. I will still occasionally watch like a, a classic match on YouTube, but I got to check this guy out again. For the I, record, uh, go I ahead. Actually, 
you know, I reached out to, to Meltzer about six months ago uh-huh. and, uh, you know, because I saw the name and I, you know, realized, geez, uh, you know, I, I think it was when Liger first announced that he was going to be retiring at the end of the year. And I said, you know, in retrospect, do you think, uh, where do you place, uh, you know, Sano in Liger's pantheon of, of great opponents and stuff like that? And I said, you know, like, uh, I think I said like top five or something like that. And he said, yeah, maybe like closer to top 10. So yeah, it just shows you how great Liger was when you watch, if you go out of your way and you watch a match between Jushin Liger and Naoki Sano, think about that, that at this point, as great as those matches are, that shows how great Liger is because that's, that's like barely a top 10 opponent of his, at yeah. least according to Meltzer. No, Liger was amazing in the late eighties, early nineties, even into the mid nineties. He was amazing. Really small guy. I mean, he could not have been five foot six. He, I think he was more like five four, five five, but he could do some amazing things in the ring. Uh, most unimproved. I don't think unimproved is an actual word, but it's the best one we can use. The wrestler who took the biggest step backward from 1988 into 1989. Number one, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Number two, they're not even calling him Terry Taylor, the Red Rooster. Number three, Barry Windham. Number four, Jerry Lawler. And then number five is Dick Murdoch. Uh, kind of an interesting list. Jeff, do you agree with it? Uh, yeah, Duggan was, well, I don't even know. You know I don't know if you can say Duggan was uh, unimproved. By this point, I, I think he was unimproved, geez, going back to 88, maybe into late 87. And, you know, again, you know, if you watch the stuff from Mid-South from like 83, because, of course, I listen to the Mid-South podcast and then I go and follow along on the YouTube. <laughs> uh, but um, Duggan was really amazing. You know, I mean, like he was such a strong, you know, heel there. He was such a strong baby face. He had those matches with DiBiase that were just off the chart good. And he went to WWF, and I don't know what happened. I mean, whether he just got lazy because he he was finally in the big time in his mind, or the travel schedule. I mean, you don't know why a guy suddenly stops working as you know as well. There's a lot of different variables, but yeah, by this point, Jim Duggan was pretty bad. He suffered a pretty significant injury. He tore his hamstring. Big difference between a tear and a pull and a hamstring. And after that happened, he started gaining weight. Yeah, there's no question. You know, and like the Red Rooster, look, Terry Taylor could work, you know. I mean, he was given a gimmick that was completely horrible where you wonder if his crappy work rate was part of the gimmick. I mean, I hate to put it that way, you know. No. I mean, I mean, the Red Rooster, is the Red Rooster supposed to go out there and have matches like, you know, Randy Savage or Ted DiBiase or have it? No, you know, absolutely not. It's a complete gimmick, you know. I mean, that's the way the WWF was in the first place. I mean, not to get off the subject, but they had guys who, you know, they didn't want them to have matches that outshined either the match that was supposed to be really good. Let's say uh, the Rockers against Tully and Arn or Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. And if you're, you know, if you're a pro wrestler and you're wrestling nine or ten towns a week, you're more than happy to just, you know, lay back and not have a good match, especially if the fans don't care. Yeah, no, and, you know, nobody was going to, a, I mean, no offense, but nobody was going to a WWF match, you know, matches and thinking they were going to have the same sort of experience. You know, if, if somebody like you, John, you you don't go and when Jim Duggan or Terry Taylor's match comes up, you're not thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, here's where they're going to kick it into gear. Yeah. You know? Four or five years before, yeah, no question about it, you were going to get a great match. But, you know, by this point, no. I, I agree. Sean, what are, you, what are your thoughts? I hate this list. 
You hate I mean, it. Here's my Great. problem. Yeah, because well, because Duggan, as you said, was hurt. All the guys on this list either have are trapped in a terrible gimmick or are 20 years into a career. I mean, what, what do you want them to do? What do you want? What do you what are you expecting from Dick Murdoch at this point in 1989? I mean, you expecting him to be a main event in you know a pay per view, or you know Lawler's been around since '72. Okay, Wyndham's fair. Uh, what do you want Terry Taylor to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, I can only imagine it must be difficult to get up and go to work every day. I mean, <laughs> to, to ask him to be putting on five star performances is, is a bit much. And Akeem, the same. I mean, what, what do you want? The worst is Andre. The guy can barely walk. How the hell did Owen Hart make this list, by the way? I know. You know, I like, saw Owen's that. Like number seven. One. Like, what did he do? Was that when he was just, uh, you know, like flying around as a blue blazer, you know, like a not doing anything in his Owen Hart, uh, you know, and Dick Murdoch, it's funny because like a year or two before was Dick Murdoch when he was part of Eddie Gilbert's uh, thing in uh, UWF, he was friggin' hilarious and he was still working his ass off. So, I mean, I know by 91, he had, uh, you know, got in with uh, Dick Slater and the Hardliners, and they were both kind of way past it. But uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if Dick Murdoch is really fair here either. I saw Murdoch in '87 have a really good match on UWF TV with Barry Windham, uh, and he did some really cool stuff in '88, especially the beginning of '88 when they had Jim Cornette managing him. So I, I ultimately wouldn't put him on a list, but I'm not going to disagree with him being on a list. Yeah, well. Putting- Okay, go ahead, Sean. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I'm not going to put anybody over 40 on this cat in this category. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, and John knows this. When I went to Japan in December of 87, I saw uh, Murdoch teaming with Inoki one night against uh, Fujinami and Kingo Kimura. And it was a 30-minute draw, and Murdoch worked 28 minutes of the match. And he was absolutely fantastic, you know. And then, But then I've gone out and I've seen, and this is the story about Murdoch. You know, he can be the best wrestler on the planet, or he could be a guy that would have the worst match you've ever seen in years. Yes. You know? And that was, it depended on, you know, the way the mood struck him. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, Murdoch was still having I disagree with the idea that no one past 40 can be on this list, because what if you're just way worse at 43 than you were at 42 and a lot of wrestlers peak in their late 30s? I mean, Ric Flair was 40 years old at this point. You know, at some point he was going to take a step back. There are exceptions, but at some point you have to just basically say, you know what, the guy's getting old. I mean, at some point, your body's just going to start to fail on you, and you're not going to be able to do what you used to do. I mean, again, Dick yeah. can still come up with a great match whenever he needs it and stuff like that. But as a consistent day-in and day-out basis, these guys are going to start getting hurt. I just noticed, how is Hasi on this list? Hiroshi Hasi. Uh, you know what? I, I can't specifically tell you why he's way worse in 89 than 88. I'm just speculating that maybe he took a step back. Yeah, it could be. I mean, he had a strong 88. Yeah, he's a tremendous performer. And come to think of it, I don't remember anything he did in '89, so maybe that speaks volumes. But that's not, that's my un, that's me talking without doing any research. But like I said, I remember him being great in '88. I don't remember anything about him in '89. I strongly disagree with Hacksaw Jim Duggan as number one because he was so awful in 1988. He didn't take a step back in 89 because there was no step back to take. The guy in 88 was at least in the argument for worst wrestler in the world. I mean, if if it wasn't Andre the Giant, it was Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Um, he was that bad. So he just didn't get that much worse. I'm sorry. Um, I, I think Terry Taylor 
He was so good in the beginning of 88 when he was in world class. Uh, he was having great matches with Chris Adams. That was a great feud. And then, you know, I guess he just got tired of getting paid what you got paid in Dallas back in those days. And he went to the WWF and we all know what happened. Um, maybe there wasn't that much of a step back from late 88 until late 89. Barry Windham, there was a huge difference between Windham and 88 who looked like he was going to be the next big thing. And the by the middle of 89, he was just a mid-carder in the WWF, and he didn't, he didn't even last the year. Barry Windham in the early part of 1989, I remember he faced um, Bam Bam Bigelow at a pay-per-view, and he was tremendous in it. And I mean, this was maybe one or two months into the year. He then disappeared, uh, whether it was uh, medical reasons or there may have been uh, a young lady involved. I've heard different stories uh, he, he was never even when he came back in uh you know 90 91 and 92 uh and they made him world champion i don't think he was ever the same as when he came back when he was that guy with the with the ponytail and uh he was just badass and he was i think five top five in the world he was amazing especially for his size yes and when he came back the WWF, like you said, John, you know, they don't they don't pay him to have great matches up there. And and he he never impressed anybody up in the WWF. And and that's what this vote is for. It's, it's not for Barry Windham in the early part of 89. It's for the Barry Windham at the end of 89. Yeah. I mean, like, I thought Barry Windham, you know, it looked like I mean, if it was me, the NWA's future would have been Ric Flair and Sting against Barry Windham and Lex Luger as heels. Uh, you know, I, th I thought Barry, like I said, not only did you mention it, he took a tremendous step, not only back in 80 in 89, but he was never able to get back to his 1988 self. And you're right, whether it be, you know, I know he had some knee problems. I heard the story, the other story that you were talking about, probably a combination of things. But anyway, I, I always say this. This is the fastest 60 minutes of my week. Uh, thank you for listening to the final Stick to Wrestling of the decade. I hope everyone had a great holiday season. We haven't had it yet, but by the time you'll be hearing this, it'll be the end of December. Jeff Baldron, thank you for being on. You were the perfect guest for this show. I hope I was convivial. You were, you were fairly convivial. I'm going to give you that. You were pretty convivial, man. Thank you. I try. All right. I want to thank Sean Goodwin for being my convivial co-host. And I want to also thank Lou Kippelman for being the producer of this show. You guys have no idea what a great job he does. And Happy New Year, everyone. A little bit early. Uh, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols. Beat Indiana on Thursday. <laughs>